Welcome to the latest episode of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Blaine Dowler. And I'm the other of your hosts, Alex Case. And this time around, we're talking about something that's been a personal favorite of mine since childhood. When this movie came out, I begged my parents to see it and begged and begged and kept begging. And it was still in theaters by the time my next birthday party rolled around. So this is what I saw. We are talking about Ghostbusters from 1984. Yeah, I was not yet born when this movie came out, so I saw this movie on home video much later than the fact. Actually, no, I think I saw it on cable originally, but still, it was much after the fact. Enjoyed it immensely, and it's one of those movies where it is is imminently quotable. I'll say that one of the role-playing game groups I've been in in the past, in addition to having the limited use of Monty Python rule, also had the limited Ghostbusters rule, which is impressive considering the body of work from Monty Python and how relatively short, by comparison, Ghostbusters is. Yeah, it is one of the most quotable movies of all time, to the point that even when I was teaching my practicums 20 years after the movie was made, when I had a room full of students, none of whom had been born when this came out, and we had guys working in the sink, and they had faucets on both ends of a large sink in the science lab, I said, don't cross the streams, and everybody knew what I was talking about. (laughs) So, we normally start off with our history of it. As I said, I saw this for my birthday party. It went beyond that. This is a movie, at the time it came out, our home video player was a beta. I wore out a copy of this movie on beta, got a replacement copy, watching that pretty much wore out the beta, (laughs) got a copy on VHS, wore that out, recorded a replacement copy off TV, wore that one out. And then in 1999, when DVDs were just starting to become popular, they'd been on the market technically since 95. They got the dual layer discs in 97. Sorry, they'd been defined in 95. They hit the market in 97. The dual layer discs came out later that year, so you could watch the typical movie without having to flip the disc over. But they weren't terribly popular. It wasn't until late 1999 that the boom hit with The Matrix. A lot of people bought their DVD players specifically to watch The Matrix. I already had mine. Now, I didn't buy my DVD player, my first DVD player, to watch The Matrix when it came out that October. Or was it late September? I bought my first DVD player that June for the 15th anniversary edition of Ghostbusters and the 10th anniversary edition of Ghostbusters 2. Those were the first two titles I own. On to the movie itself. There's a lot of trivia out there about Ghostbusters, and I've been consuming it for years. So this time the story is not going to start with the release of the film. It's going to start with what brought the main leads together. Because we often hear stories about how studio interference and rewrites and loss of cast members and all sorts of other things ultimately damage films, and they come out as lesser products. This is one of the examples where I say rewrites and recasting made the movie better. We have a few things going on, and a lot of this is covered in the spectacular commentary track, probably the single most entertaining commentary track I've ever heard on a DVD. If you have access, do yourself a favor and make time to listen to it. But the way this started off, it was coming in sort of in different parallel ends. So Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis had already collaborated on Stripes, and that had gone over very well. And Columbia wanted to bring that team back and have another big hit coming out of them. On a completely unrelated note, Dan Aykroyd had written a movie for Ghostbusters, or called Ghostbusters. Actually, at the time he wrote it, it was called Ghost Stoppers. And his Ghost Stoppers script was for him and two of his friends from Saturday Night Live. So in his script, he played a character named Ray Stance. John Belushi was the character, or the actor he had in mind when he created Peter Venkman. And the third member of the Ghostbusters team was going to be Winston Zedmore, played by Eddie Murphy. And this was an incredibly expensive script. The estimate, if you read that script, is in 1984 dollars that it would have cost about $300 million to make. Ooh. The Stave Puff Marshmallow Man, that is the signature end piece of the film, would have appeared on about page 20 of the original script. So that's about 20 minutes into a two and a half hour movie, and it continued escalating after that. In Ackroyd's original script, it was in the near future, so it wasn't a going into business story. The near future version of the script, ghost busting or ghost stopping, was one of your basic society services right up there with police, fire, and ambulance. 
So that's where the sirens come from. That's where the dispatch comes from. That was part of the original script. And having worked with Harold Ramis in the past, knowing Ivan Reitman's reputation, Aykroyd sent his script to Ivan Reitman's people. And his people read it, told him it was good, there's potential, but it was a complete cost overrun. There's no way it would get made. It would need a massive rewrite before anyone could touch it. But of all the scripts that had been sent to Reitman, it was the only one that they thought was kind of workable. And that's the way they described it to Ivan Reitman, who hadn't actually read it yet. When he got a call from an exec at Columbia saying, let's do lunch and find out what you've got coming next. So they sit down to lunch, and Ivan is, Reitman sat down with the 30-second overview of Dan Aykroyd's script that he got from one of his people, having never read the script. And the guy said, what have you got coming next? And Reitman said, I've got a going-into-business story. He wasn't connecting with Ghostbusters yet. That's what he wanted to do. And the Columbia exec said, okay, we need something big scale. We want, you know, they were trying to get into the sci-fi fantasy genres that they hadn't hit yet. They needed something along those lines. And Reitman said, you know, I've got the perfect script for you. Dan Aykroyd did the first draft. Harold Ramis is going to do a rewrite for me. That's the going into business story. And he gave a rough description of Ghostbusters. Guy figured, okay, this is going to work. How much is it going to cost? Reitman says 30 million, the number he pulled out of a hat. Nothing was done. It was approved on the spot. They had a week and a half to start filming. Reitman left that meeting, called Harold Ramis and said, hey, I've got your next project. It's already signed. You need to rewrite this script. <laughs> so you'll often hear that Aykroyd and Ramis wrote this in collaboration. The one they actually collaborated on was Ghostbusters 2. The first Ghostbusters, there's an and, and rather than the ampersand between their names, Ramis did a rewrite independent of Aykroyd and brought it in like this. And in that rewrite... That's when he decided to put in a character for himself, and that's where Egon came from. Because it wasn't established, he needed another character to be the big brain of the operation, and the guy who really drives the technology. So that's where Egon came in. The original script did have Dana Barrett, and it did have Louis Tully as the guy across the apartment hall from her. That character was written for John Candy, and John Candy was going to play him as a very German individual with Rottweilers, and there's a lot of dog imagery with the terror dogs and other things. It wasn't working. So this is where the other person comes in, who the IMDb lists as having as uncredited writing credits after weeks and weeks of pre-production, and it wasn't going anywhere, and they needed to get moving. John Candy backed out. He went to Reitman and Ramis and Aykroyd and the other producers and said, I can't get a handle on this character. It's not working. I know you're in a tight jam. You need this fixed fast. Call Rick. Rick Moranis will know what to do with it. And he brought him in from the SCTV. Now, Bill Murray had already been brought in after John Belushi's untimely death. Eddie Murphy was tied up with other projects because the scheduling didn't work, which is how Ernie Hudson came in as Winston Zedmore. And he was rewritten to be introduced later just to cover the time for casting so they had more stuff to film in the interim. When Rick Moranis came in, he did a massive rewrite of everything with Lewis Tully in it. And he refused writer credit for it. They offered writer credit because it was such a big rewrite. But he said, no, this whole thing is being ad-libbed. You guys are rewriting things all the time. The only difference is I worked on the paper while you guys worked live in front of the camera. He said, everyone else who's on screen has this level. He refused it. But he was the one that made Lewis Tully an accountant. He's the one that decided the party scene was going to be clients. Because he figured, Lewis Tully will not have this many friends. So in that party scene... This is one of the major flags for how well made this movie is. If you sit down and watch that carefully, it is one take. The only prompting Rick Moranis gave anyone was he asked one person to start that scene by coming up and asking for headache medicine by brand name. And they just put the camera on him and watch him go. And you'll see him going around the room. He gives her the advice about buying the generic headache medicine instead of the name brand stuff, which saves you a lot of money. He, you know, talks about Ted and Annette Fleming when they come in and gives their full history and their accounting, what their businesses are. That scene was one take, one shot, and 100% ad-libbed. He ran through <laughs> that whole thing. I have so much more respect for Rick Moranis after listening to the commentary here in Little Shop of Horrors. And if you watch it very carefully, just after that scene, for example, there's a scene where Rick Moranis goes and he's running away from the terror dog and comes up to the tavern on the Green Restaurant in Central Park. And he's seen from outside. My family took a trip to New York a few weeks before Barack Obama was elected the first time. And we actually ate at Tavern on the Green. And I was able to talk the cameraman 
into taking or the photographer into letting me take a picture pounding on the same pane of glass that Rick Moranis was pounding on, which by the way, the cameraman couldn't find, but I recognized <laughs> because I've seen this movie so bloody many times. <laughs> it's hard to spot in the movie, but there's actually flower beds outside all the windows. And these are not cheap flowers and they are very well maintained. So they were a little bit nervous about that. I, I had to step very, very carefully through it. After having been there and coming back and rewatching this, I noticed something in Rick Moranis' performance I never noticed before. When he's running back and forth and pounding on the windows, there's that one final moment where he comes right up to the glass and starts pounding on it there instead of just trying for the doors. If you watch his feet carefully as he's running up, he jumps both feet straight up, up and over, and then he lands with his feet sideways pressed up against the glass to completely miss the flowers. It's well done, it's very physical, and it is so perfectly timed and choreographed with his frantic motion, you don't even notice, but as an actor, he's completely aware that these people have loaned him the sets, and he went out of his way to preserve those flowers when he didn't actually need to do it. Wow. Bullard's bitch for me, like, this is, like, the third movie I ever saw Rick Moranis in, the first two being, when I was a kid, the Honey I Shrunk the Kid, well, the Honey I Blanked the Kids movies, Honey I Shrunk and Honey I Blew Up the Kids. So, it is really interesting seeing Rick Moranis in this place, Rick Moranis in this movie for the first time, compared to his very somewhat different performance in those films, in the uh, Disney films. Yeah, and different again in Little Shop of Horrors, and like I said, there. There's a lot I'll say for that podcast, because I'm sure we'll get to it, but he was very impressive in there as well. But in any event, that was what was pulling it together. Now, when they pulled it together, they didn't just get the strong performers and these writers and Ivan Reitman back together again. The entire cast and crew is pretty stellar. So on the music, we have Elmer Bernstein. This is a guy who's done a, quite a number of projects. He's done Bringing Out the Dead, the Magnificent Seven TV series. He's done Buddy, Bulletproof, My Left Foot, Slipstream, Legal Eagles, Spies Like Us, Gulag, Genocide, Heavy Metal, Saturn III, The Great Santini, Powers of Ten, Slapshot, Serpico, Captains and the King, Ellery Queen, Mr. Quip, The Rookies, McHugh, Teaser, Owen Marshall, Magnificent Seven Ride Again, Tops, Gypsy Mods, and there's a lot more. But no, Elmer Bernstein, he's got a fairly extensive career going back to 1952, and that's just in the music department with 97 credits. If you look at him as a composer, there's 245 credits to his name, and there's a lot more involved in that one. We're talking about True Grit. We're talking about Big Valley, Return of the Seven, a lot of the Magnificent Seven Woman movies, actually. Seven Women, Carpetbaggers, Great Escape, HUD, to Kill a Mockingbird, Birdman of Alcatraz, Walk on the Wild Side. He's got a pretty incredible career. And he did the music in this one, so he did the scores. So the actual official Ghostbusters theme is that That was his. Dana Barrett's theme when they're out at the fountain, which was a pain. The sound guys kept asking, Can we turn off the fountain? It's hard to record, and they're going, No, we're here for the fountain. <laughs> Cinematography was by Laszlo Kovacs, who is another legend. 78 cinematography credits for him. And we're talking about quite a number of things. If we go back through these, the Savage Seven, Man Called Dagger, Mark of the Gun, Easy Rider are probably his earliest credits. He did What's Up, Doc. He did Paper Moon. So he's done a variety of films. And I really want to call out his work on cinematography. Cinematography can be a challenge. This is where you're setting up what the camera shots are going to be. This is where you're setting up what the lighting is going to be. And a lot of times doing it very well requires a lot of precision. That's part of the reason why with most movies that are allowing actors to do a lot of ad-libbing, you have very plain cinematography. So you get sort of a medium shot or, you know, the camera's backed up to catch the whole scene. It's very evenly lit. So all parts are lit at once. And that's just to let the actors do whatever they do. And you can see whatever's going on from anywhere. This allowed a lot of ad-libbing, but it also had a supernatural element. So you still needed shadow work. You still needed contact and texture, but they wanted to give the actors room to ad-lib. And Kovacs did a very impressive job. You get shadows, you get texture, and yet the zones that the actors could potentially be walking through are all well lit enough that you see exactly what's going on. You know, sometimes it's a little bit shaded, sometimes it's not, but it's all setting the mood. 
and all the actors are in equal amounts of shade. So it's not highlighting anyone over the rest. It's a very difficult and fine line to walk in cinematography to pull that off and still allow the actors the freedom to ad-lib. And Kovacs did it. That was an incredibly challenging job. Now, the editors have similar credits. There's David E. Blewett. He's another guy with about 50 credits to his name, going back to 1965. We've got Sheldon Kahn, who's got 38 credits to his name, going back to 75, where his editorial debut was made on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ooh. These are not slight credits. After that, he did Enemy of the People, ben, uh, Private Benjamin, Absence of Malice, Kiss Me Goodbye, Unfaithfully Yours. He did Out of Africa around the same time as he did Ghostbusters, Legal Eagles, La Bamba, Big Shots, Twins, Kindergarten Cop, Beethoven, Father's Day. And he's still working. His latest credit is Draft Day from 2014. And then for visual effects, you've got Richard Edlund. If you pay attention to names in visual effects, you have heard the name Richard Edlund. So if we run through these, his most prominent jobs in terms of visual effects, well, let's see, there's his debut as one of the people who worked on miniature and optical effects as the first cameraman on Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Then he did the Manitou, he did the Battlestar Galactica movie slash pilot episode, The China Syndrome. Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist, Return of the Jedi, Ghostbusters, 2010, Fright Night, Poltergeist 2, Legal Eagles, Big Trouble in, Middle, in Little China, The Boy Who Could Fly, Solar Babies, Masters of the Universe, sadly, Monster Squad, <laughs> yeah. Date with an Angel, Leonard Part 6, Earth Star Voyager, Die Hard, Big Top Pee Wee, Ghost, Judas Product, Alien 3, Tales from the Crypt, Species, Multiplicity, Turbulence, Air Force One, Desperate Measured, or Measures, sorry, Bedazzled, Stepford Wives, the 2004 remake, 21 Jump Street, Bullet to the Head. If you know visual effects with miniatures, you know the work of Richard Edlund. He will make detailed miniatures, and by and large, he will do a good job of hiding the fact that they are miniatures in the way it's shot. So we are looking at a very talented team putting this film together, and it shows. Also, for that merit, speaking of neighbors, which caught my attention, art director on this... Oh, the production designer is John is on the bet butcher this name John DeCour, who, while he hasn't done that much science fiction stuff in here, if you if you have a relative who enjoys musicals, you might have seen his art design and production design work before. For example, The King and I, South Pacific, which are considered sort of the the if there's a canon for big Hollywood musicals, they're at the top. Yeah, Rodgers and Hammerstein in general. Yeah. Rodgers and Hammerstein and Gene Kelly are sort of the, the top for the musical chart, and they worked, he worked with a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein productions, including South Pacific and The King and I. Mm-hmm. And John DeCour Jr., uh, oddly enough, the son of John DeCour, uh, the production was the art director on this one, and he would go on to do, among other, th work on, among other things, Fright Night, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, the, the Second Sister Act movie, and Top Gun. So there's... Definite credentials in the crew. Now, running through the cast, there's no shortage of talent there either. So as you said, we've got as the concept creator, and as Ray Stance, we have Dan Aykroyd. Now, it's really hard, at least for people of my generation, to understand how popular Dan Aykroyd was when this came out. Because to me, no matter what I see him in, I see Ray Stance. In a lot of ways, this is a seminal role for a guy who was in the Blues Brothers, in Trading Places, in Dragnet, in Spies Like Us, on Saturday Night Live, in Evolution. Soul Man was actually a good series, even if it only lasted one season. I enjoyed that TV series quite a bit. Gross Point Blank, Sergeant Bilko, Casper, Canadian Bacon, Chaplin, Sneakers, My Girl, Caddyshack 2, My Stepmother is an Alien, he was in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He was in Coneheads, Twilight Zone, the movie. He's got no shortage of credits. And yet I would say that by and large, Ghostbusters is what he's best known for. We've got the unfortunately deceased Harold Ramis, who passed away earlier this year, back in February. Now, as a writer, he'd written a few things before this, including SCTV, where he was a staple. And that's the network that Bill Murray came in through. They were all trained by Second City in terms of comedy. And one of the main tenets of Second City comedy training is don't worry about how good you look. 
go out of your way to make sure everybody else looks good. Because if everyone's looking out for anyone else or for everyone else and not caring about themselves, you eliminate ego and everyone looks good. And that's very much the mentality that went into the creation of this movie. We're talking about a guy who worked on Animal House, Delta House, SCTV, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes. He wrote the quote-unquote autobiographical Rodney Dangerfield movie. Now we've got Ivan Reitman as the director, who as I said was coming off Stripes, which was a rather big hit. Prior to that, he also done Meatballs, Cannibal Girls, Foxy Lady. He went on to Legal Eagles, Twins, Ghostbusters 2, Kindergarten Cop, Dave, Junior, Father's Day, Six Days, Seven Nights, Evolution, uh, Draft Day, where he worked with Khan again. So he's got no shortage of decent credits. We have got Bill Murray, who, to a lot of people, is still associated directly with Peter Venkman and Ghostbusters, even though that's not what he's won his Oscars for or been got his Oscar nominations for. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's done St. Vincent, Greg Budapest Hotel, Fantastic Mr. Fox. He's done the Garfield movies in a bit of a twist, because that's when Lorenzo Music was originally cast as the voice of Garfield. They were going for someone who sounded like Bill Murray, but who they could afford. And then when Lorenzo Music passed away, they wanted someone who sounded like Lorenzo Music, and they hired Bill Murray. Well, to be fair, Lorenzo Music, didn't he do the voice of Peter Venkman in the Ghostbusters animated series? Or was he uh, Stance? No, he was Peter Venkman. Okay. Uh, Ray Stance and Slimer were both Frank Welker. Oh, that's right. So so Megatron. <laughs> yeah, among many, 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 many others. Indeed. Yeah, back to Bill Murray. He did Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, The Royal Tenenbaums. There's a very long list of credits here. He's got 75 total. I'm sure we'll be talking about Groundhog Day at some point in one of these podcasts. He was Arthur Denton in Little Shop of Horrors a couple years later. In the So that's the 1986 remake of Little Shop of Horrors. He played the role originally played by Jack Nicholson. Yep. So we've got Sigourney Weaver, who had already been in Alien, but the sequels hadn't come out yet. So... She had already been in The Year of Living Dangerously. This is before Gorillas in the Mist, before Working Girl, before Dave. So she was a respected actress, but not yet Oscar-nominated. The not-yet-Oscar-nominated bit, that's going to be a theme. Yeah. So we've got Rick Moranis, who we've already talked about, who was also in Spaceballs and Strange Brew. He is... I still associate him most strongly with this movie and with Little Shop of Horrors, as well as SCTV, which I grew up with. Annie Potts, who is known to a lot of people from Designing Women, the younger generation we know her from Toy Story. She was in this film as Janine Melnitz. We've got William Atherton, whose personal life was apparently almost destroyed by this movie. And looking over his IMDb credits for a time after this movie, he kind of got typecast in Walter Peck-esque roles. In yep. Die Hard and Die Hard 2, he plays Richard Thornburg, which is basically Walter Peck, except he gets stuck in... That he's in Bruce Willis movies instead of Harold Ramis comedies. Yeah, he's a TV reporter instead of an EPA spokesman, but otherwise it's pretty much the same guy. Same with his role in Real Genius as Val Kilmer's supervising professor in that college comedy, which I highly recommend. Yeah, out of curiosity, I know he gets cold cocked in both Die Hard movies. Does he get? And uh, he doesn't get cold cocked in, uh, particularly in Ghostbusters. Does he get cold cocked in Real Genius? No, but. His house gets destroyed by an overabundance of popcorn. Huh. Well, in terms of physical act, physical acting, particularly potentially getting punched in the face, I think probably William Atherton's probably better off in comedies than, than in action movies. Yeah, Real Genius is easy to recommend, but William Atherton's problem with this was, as you said, he got typecast. He couldn't get a job as a nice guy for a long time after this. And this went beyond typecasting. We're talking about he'd be going through the grocery store and six and seven-year-old kids would come up and kick him in the shins and run away because they saw Walter Peck. He'd be driving down the street and an entire busload of school-age students roll down the windows and shout, Yo, Dickless! Just to get his attention when they recognized him on the street. He, he There was just too many people who couldn't dissociate the actor from the character and had strong negative reactions to him which is why he chose not to come back for the sequel. He was still, five years later, he still couldn't distance himself from this type of role between Ghostbusters and Die Hard, where he basically got the role based on Ghostbusters. 
It was the, oh, you're Walter Peck? Here, we've got the right role for you. Go. He didn't even come back for Ghostbusters the game. And I think they got everybody except for, like, in terms of major actors. Uh, they You're talking about the 2009 video game? Yeah, the 2009 video game. They got Rick Moranis back. They got... Uh, no, they didn't No, they didn't get Rick Moranis back. He basically retired on his Honey, I Shrunk the Kids money. Um, yeah, but, but they got they got Ackroyd back. They got Murray back. They did get Atherton back. He's in it. Oh, I, I looking over his IMDb credits. I didn't see it there. Yeah. In the... Oh, there it is. All right. So they finally got him back for the video game. Yeah. I played that and reviewed it for the site, too. You think I'd remember that? Yeah. That was a good game, which was based on what was going to be the original script for Ghostbusters 3. Yeah. And uh, we also have Ernie Hudson as Winston Zedmore, who has also been in The Crow, Oz, Miss Congeniality, not as much before this as some of the others, but still a very healthy career. Like Actually, the year after this, he made it in the second version of the Super Friends Superpowers team, where he basically became the first actor to play Victor Stone, Cyborg, on in any medium, really. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was actually very good. He was in Broken Badges. He had uh, voice acting work on Batman the Animated Series. He's got 203 credits. If anything, he's probably the most frequently working actor of the core four here. He was in Congo. He was in Grace Under Fire, Leviathan, the Superman Animated Series, Arliss, Touched by an Angel. He was in 56 episodes of Oz as Warden Leo Glynn which is probably what a lot of people know him best as. He guest shot on Stargate SG-1, seven episodes of Desperate Housewives. He plays Gus's father in an episode of Psych. He's in Bones. He was in Law and Order, Torchwood in Miracle Day. He's Agent William Fowler in Transformers Prime. So he's got a very healthy career. We've got David Margulies as the mayor in this one, who's also been in Ace Ventura... The original Nine and a Half Weeks, The Sopranos, Law and Order. He's of the caliber where it's not typical to know him by name, but he's definitely one of the, oh, that guy kind of actors. We also have a few interesting for the as-themselves roles in here as well, because we have we have Casey Kasem from back when he was doing the Casey's Top 40, mm-hmm. doing a bit of the, of what's meant to be part of the Casey's Top 40 for that. We have, I don't know who Joe Franklin is, but the one that sticks out my attention is Larry King, Back before we had CNN and cable television, and thus the Larry King live TV show, which is probably when he got much broader national and possibly even international recognition. Yeah, there were a lot of them, and most of those were specifically TV and radio personalities that weren't distinctly New York at the time. This is a very New York movie, and all public areas were filmed in New York. So it's actually, it's an actual hook and ladder fire station that they used for the, the Ghostbusters Hall for all the exterior shots, which was actually flooded with people leaving memorials when Harold Ramis passed away. It was just covered with them. We've got the New York Public Library. Again, when we went to Manhattan, I checked the map, and I spent 45 minutes walking to the New York Public Library to take pictures of the lions. It, this is very much a New York movie, and they had a lot of these locales in here. Tavern on the Green I've mentioned. The New York Public Library, the interior is actually where they shot the publicly viewed areas of the interior of the New York Public Library. So when they first walk in and Egon's on the floor with a stethoscope listening to the bottom of the table, that's the actual New York Public Library as it appeared in 1984. Now the basement, which is not public, that's a library in Los Angeles because they did shift the filming there. But a lot of this was done in New York. In the montage where they're running down the street, if you look carefully in the background, there's a guy chasing them. They're actually being chased. The place where they were filming with the three of them running down the street before they hired Winston, it's not actually legal to film there. So the locals were really chasing them out of the area while they were shooting. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who were showing up as extras because they kind of got the feel that something was happening. If you look very closely behind the barricades in one of those scenes, there's a guy who comes up and kind of strokes his beard a bit. He was not a paid extra. He wandered onto set and just came to check out what they were filming. There's another guy behind the barricade, no beard, but a distinctive mustache who may be recognized by some people who, shall we say, frequently clear their internet browsing history. He's Ron Jeremy as an extra in this film. Uh, Another diehard connection when they're in prison and police officer says, come on out, we need to talk to the mayor. 
That's Reginald Vel Johnson, or Vel Johnson, sorry, who is, you know, one of the main leads in Die Hard. He was the lead in Family Matters, the spinoff of Perfect Strangers, and actually reprised his role from Die Hard in an episode of Chuck. Huh. We've got Michael Ensign as the guy who's running the Hotel Sedgwick, which is a rebranded hotel, but an actual hotel in New York. I got the exterior shots of that, too, and the church that Mr. Stapuff steps on. But he is in there, and he's got guest spots. I mean, he was in Titanic. He, had, he was in Seabiscuit. He's got guest spots in Star Trek. So again, it's just filled with people that you would know. Now, when it comes to the movie itself, we've already been podcasting a while, so let's do a pretty short summary of what's going on. So uh going to tell you a story about a little town I know. They had a real big problem with some big, mean local ghosts. The spooks were making the whole city lose control. Well, the mayor was frantic. The town was panicked because they had no sense of fear because they knew they were missing those boys with a mission so they called them up right here they were boxing and trapping and shooting through the joint stepped right in and got down to the point those ghostbusters came in cleaning up the town oh yeah about five o'clock those boys came up and they could see those spooks were real and they knew they'd better get right to work so they revved up the ectomobile yeah the boys were ready their aim was steady and their hearts were made of steel well the mayor he started ranting around and the whole town started to roar and they're seeing this town that rocked those slimers drop down to the floor they were boxing and trapping and shooting through the joint, stepped right in and got down to the point those Ghostbusters came in, cleaning up the town. They were boxing and trapping and shooting through the joint, stepped right in, got down to the point you should have seen the specters in the trap saying, those boys make them dance. Well, New York, New York's so happy now and they rocked that building boy, but if the boys hadn't come to the rescue, those spooks might still be making noise. They were boxing and trapping and shooting through the joint, stepped right in and got down to the point those Ghostbusters came in, cleaning up the town. So that's an executive summary. Of what's going from on soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. From the excellent soundtrack. When Indeed. This hit, this wasn't just a popular movie. This was a legitimate cultural phenomenon. Ivan Reitman and producer Joe Mujic say in the commentary, they recognized that they had a hit on their hands. When it was still nine weeks before release, they were walking down the streets of New York, and they couldn't go more than two blocks without seeing unlicensed Ghostbusters logo t-shirts for sale from one of the street vendors. <laughs> That's when they realized this was going to be huge. And it was. As we've already mentioned, we had the real Ghostbusters animated TV series. And who was the showrunner on that one? None other than J. Michael Straczynski. Best known to fans nowadays for creating Babylon 5, he was just coming off as He-Man and She-Ra era. And wasn't quite into the Twilight Zone and Murder, She Wrote yet. But he was showrunner on the real Ghostbusters. And he is one of the reasons I've got problems with Ghostbusters too. At the end of this movie, Winston is still sort of a, the extra guy, the hanger-on, just the indication that things are getting busier because they needed to hire more people. By the time Ghostbusters 2 came around, the movies were still written that way, like he was the extra. But Straczynski in the cartoon went out of his way to make him an equal partner as soon as he possibly could. There were video games. I spent countless hours on the Commodore 64 video game that was adapted directly into the 8-bit Nintendo system when they just extended the final tower sequence a little bit more. Which is not... A, I'll, I'll say, I, I haven't played the NES version for review. The extending the final tower sequence makes does not do the game any favors. If you have no problems with Telepius Profanity, there is an internet critic by the name of the Angry Video Game Nerd who has given his thoughts at length on the NES version of Ghostbusters. In case you couldn't tell from the name of his show, he doesn't like it very much. Yeah, that's I, I didn't hear good things about that adaptation. I never played it because I had the C64 version. That basic game format is the basis of the current iOS game by Beeline Entertainment. So there is a, an iOS Ghostbusters game where, again, you're going through the city doing busts, there's a 50-floor tower in the middle. I believe production on the game has halted because it's been a long time since they had an update. It only goes up to Tower 25 now. I found it quite enjoyable, and it comes directly off Peter Venkman's introduction in this film, where you see his character as he's sort of belittling one guy and hitting on a female volunteer. Well, the guy he's belittling, turns out he really was psychic, and some mysterious third party has given him a power boost, and he's the villain that you're fighting in that iOS game. So if you haven't checked it out, it's free. Go for it. Other Ghostbusters white piece of merchandise. I mentioned tabletop role-playing games before. This is Ghostbusters tabletop role-playing game was one of the first licensed role-playing games put out by West End Games. 
If you've been in gaming for a while, you may know them more from the Star Wars role-playing game, which is probably their bigger claim to fame, and where they actually went and managed to have some minor influences to the Star Wars canon, coining some ter terminology, name for planet, names for planets, races, that sort of thing. The game has the players basically being a, fr a Ghostbusters franchise, playing off of the dialogue earlier, where uh, Venkman's talking about all the money they can make from franchising the Ghostbusters. The franchise rights alone will make us rich beyond our wildest dreams. Indeed, and you end up running a Ghostbusters franchise, you license yourself or rent yourself some proton packs and set out to clean, to clean up whatever your, your city is. And one of the adventures I remember that was written for it has you hired to take out a ghost that's haunting a movie set. I believe it's meant to be a sort of Godzilla-esque movie. And so you end up trashing their miniature version of Tokyo in the climax. And I think they end up filming, like, the, the director ends up just having to film it just because, well, we're only going to get to shoot this once. <laughs> yep, sounds about right. It spawned a sequel in 1989. And Dan Aykroyd has been pushing for Ghostbusters 3 for a long time. But I clearly remember when the whole cast was on Oprah, which is the reason I was watching Oprah at age 12 or would have been 11 at that time of the year, they asked them, do you have plans for Ghostbusters 3? Are you going to keep going? And Harold Ramis' response was, unlike some science fiction franchises, we have no intentions of needing a plastic surgeon on the set to make us look young. <laughs> which was a direct shot at Star Trek VI, which also came out that year, and which did have plastic surgeons on the set just to work with the cast and crew, primarily the cast. With other franchising, you could buy anything you wanted with that logo, and still can today. I actually have a tin of breath mints upstairs right now with the Ghostbusters logo. You had the soundtrack, which came out, which is actually a very enjoyable soundtrack. They got a fair amount of variety in there, because it was the songs were chosen for the tone and the scenes they fit. So Cleaning Up the Town by the Bus Boys, which I quoted at length earlier. I won't say sang, because, yeah, I've heard myself sing. <laughs> That's one of them, which gets a little bit of a big band sound to it. There's some electronica. There's the Elmer Bernstein score. There's, of course, the Ray Parker Jr. title track, which was a huge hit and the source of one of the two lawsuits that Ghostbusters had to deal with. Uh, that one was basically Huey Lewis versus Ray Parker Jr. because he felt that opening chord, that that you get in Ghostbusters, that... You know, when it opens, it goes... He thought that sounded a little too similar to the... Opening to I Want a New Drug. And Huey Lewis sued him over that for copying the opening. And in that case, the judge sided with Huey Lewis. And Ray Parker Jr. had to pay a penalty. The other lawsuit that they had to deal with is the reason that the first Ghostbusters is officially titled as two words. Ghostbusters. And they shove the logo in the middle so it kind of blankets that, but it is a two-word title. While the sequel is one word, and all the video games and tie-ins are one word. And that's because a company called Filmation made a live-action series in the 70s titled Ghostbusters as a single word. Where there's two guys and their gorilla out there busting ghosts. And that was turned into a, an animated series right around the same time that the real Ghostbusters came out as an animated series to try and secure the copyright. Again, the real Ghostbusters had the word real in it specifically to avoid that copyright and trademark infringement. That course case cited on Columbia's side because they had it as two words. And because right up until the last minute was Ghost Stopper, so it wasn't part of the original inspiration for it. Or so they said, I don't know, Dan Aykroyd is of the right age that he may have been at least vaguely aware of the original Filmation product, property. Which, frankly, as Filmation titles goes, is okay. I've got some of those on DVD. Filmation is known for making things on the cheap, and that is one of them. That's another one I fondly remember, although I prefer this version to that one. Yeah, I mean, the Ghostbusters theme as a whole, or the theme from the, from the movie, I remember, aside from the here get in affiliated properties, the film, the real Ghostbusters, like, it was one of the various top songs that have the top 40 hit songs that have been performed by Alvin and the Chipmunks. It got featured in a rock band game, Lego Rock Band, which I have, well, not good radio, but it's it's currently in my office. 
So I, it, yeah, it's, it has, it's one of the cases where the theme song for a movie, rather than, I guess, kind of being overshadowed by the movie that, that it's made for, has maintained equal levels of cultural permeability to the movie itself. I mean, even Bond themes, including the ones that get nominated for Academy Awards, like the theme for Skyfall, they always live, there's, they always kind of live in the shadow of their movie to a certain extent. Yeah, and this is one, I remember an episode of Give Me a Break that had Ray Parker Jr. as a guest star, and they were all talking about the song with no reference to the movie. It's really hard to pin down and say which was bigger, the song or the movie, because they both hit huge. It helps that they came out that the movie, that the song, both the movie and song came out in 85, with, oh, 84, which is just close enough to the rise of MTV. Where the where the song also got a music video, which featured the cast of the of the uh, movie in it. Mm-hmm. I have not. I've seen. It's been a while since I've seen the music video, so I can't say for how good it is. Mind you, this is a fairly early music video, so yeah, it was one of the best of the era. But it is of the era. But, but yeah, you you can't watch it and not recognize that it's a 1984 music video. But it's Ray Parker Jr. in with a couple of people around him in a mostly blank set. So he's surrounded by blackness with a couple props in front of him as he's going through and performing. And as you said, they mix in footage with the leads shot for the music video, which certainly did help. But there's you can't watch it and not know it's a music video from the early days of music videos. It's also one of the, you know, that phone as the prop. I distinctly remember because that was a huge piece of what was going on here. Even to the point... Around 15 years later, so around the year 2000, there's an episode of Buffy that makes reference to this. Actually, I think by that time it would have been about 2001, where Buffy's going upstairs. Spike says, who are you going to call? Turns to the person next to him and says, we're never going to be able to use that line again, are we? Because for a lot, an entire generation, and probably more than one, you hear the line, who are you going to call? The response is, Ghostbusters. Yep. Just because of the commercial that they shot within the movie. You know, with the, we're ready to believe you, which goes a a long way to show the amount of attention to detail that they had in this film. If you watch that carefully, you will see in jokes that primarily only other actors will pick up. So I'm not just talking about overdubbing it because they were actually still saying ghost stoppers when it was filmed. If you pay close attention, right, they each step forward and say their line and step back when they've got the three of them on screen. Harold Ramis as Egon Spengler decided... Egon is not an actor. He's not a physical guy. He's not going to know what it means to hit his marks. So for those who aren't aware of marks, on stage, they will frequently tape marks down that are not going to appear on film. So when actors walk into a room, they have to stop on the blue X or stop on the red X. That's their mark so that the cinematography works out for where they are. Jon Stewart has said one of the reasons you can tell he's a poor actor is because he could never hit his mark. So his marks weren't colored tape. They were sandbags and he would stop when he walked into them. Well, Harold Ramis decided that Egon Spengler would not know how to hit his marks, so when he steps forward and step back, you see him look down, so he will step on the mark (laughs) without missing it. It's a very subtle joke, but it's one he put in there. And Harold Ramis has a lot of subtle jokes in here. On the commentary, he will actually thank you for buying the DVD or the Blu-ray so you get the widescreen picture. Because a lot of times he gets cut out because he's doing little visual gags off to the side and not saying anything. So when you convert it to pan and scan, he gets lost. For example, when they first catch Slimer, and Venkman is quoting to Michael Ensign's character what the prices are, on the pan and scan version, you see him looking to the right. And you don't understand why. In the movie, in the widescreen version, you can see it's because they're making up the prices. So Venkman's <laughs> saying, you know, this is only cost going to cost you, and looks to his right, comes back $4,000. And while he was looking, Egon was rubbing four fingers on his cheek. And then, But, you know, we are having a special on entrapment and storage of the beast. And that's only going to cost you. And he looks over and Egon's wiping his cheek with one finger. He goes, oh, $1,000. So they're making up the prices and that joke gets cut. <laughs> there are multiple versions of it. There is a reason to go back and watch the TV version, though. Because as we said, there was a lot of ad-libbing allowed on the set. And back in the 80s... The TV rerun market was a big market, but it was subject to network standards. So you get a lot of poorly dubbed profanities, if you have profanities in the movie at all. Oh, yeah. And this one has, 
there, there's a couple times they drop the S-bomb. There's one that would make it on the air now. So when they first beat Slimer and Venkman comes out of the room and says, we came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Well, they did about 10 takes of every shot. And every time they put conscious effort into trying to be funny without profanity so they'd have something to use for the network broadcast that didn't have bad dubbing. So while the theatrical audience and the purchased home video audience heard, you know, we came, we saw, we kicked its ass. If you're watching it on TV, Bangma comes out of those doors and says, well, what a knockabout of pure fun that was. Yeah. They actually had alternate versions of many scenes specifically for network broadcast. And to give you an idea of just how bad it can be if you don't, if they, if the people making the movie don't prepare for this sort of thing, as with Ghostbusters. I mean, there's the classic example of Die Hard with Yuppie Kaye, Mr. Falcon. But also, to the credit of the DVD release of the Brian De Palma Scarface movie, they have a bonus feature on there with some highlights from the TV, from the broadcast television version of Scarface. If you're familiar with that movie, you know that that is a film which, after a time, had the world rec- Guinness World Record for most uses of the F-bomb. So they had to be very, very creative with that dub. And the film becomes somewhat hilarious because of it. Yeah. And this one, they were trying to stay hilarious on their own terms, which is why they had the multiple takes. And a lot of that was live. And some of this... As I mentioned, they had 10 days between when Harold Ramis got the thing greenlit and when they had to start shooting. And they hadn't finished the rewrite when they were doing it. So again, in that scene, you will see the way the ad-libbing works. So Harold Ramis is shooting the scene where they're in the ballroom trying to take down Slimer. And he's trying to figure out how they're going to beat Gozer in the end. He has no idea how they're going to do it. They needed an out. And it came to him while they were filming. So when he said, oh, I forgot to mention, don't cross the streams. None of the other actors knew that was coming or why that was coming. That was They were in the middle of filming, and he said, this is a good part to establish it. It's got to be done sooner. So he hits that. So when Bill Murray says, why? And he goes, it would be bad. It's because he hadn't figured it out yet, and he's stalling for time. And Bill Murray picked up on that, which is why when they cut back to Bill Murray, he takes a glance over to Ray, goes back to Egon, and says, I'm a little fuzzy on the whole good-bad thing. He's stalling for time to give Ramus time to think. And by this time, Harold Ramus hasn't come up with a catchphrase yet, but he said, well, imagine, you know, everything being reversed and all the protons in your body exploding at the speed of light. They put in an insert of Dan Aykroyd going total protonic reversal. So there was no camera set up to take that shot of Dan Aykroyd. They did that later to get that reaffirmation and some label to give it. And that's when Peter Venkman says, okay, good. Important safety tip. They finished filming and they came out and they're going, what was that about? And he's, well, he's solving the end of the film while they're shooting this one. So a lot of this was done on the fly and it's last minute and it's amazing how well it works. And a lot of that is because Ivan Reitman knows how to work with ab- actors who want to ad lib. And they've got actors with the Second City training who ad lib extremely well and can feed off each other in a way that keeps things funny, keeps things fresh and moves the story forward which is a big piece that's missing from a lot of ad-lib. They go off on tracks that are funny and forget about the story. These guys never forgot about the story. They kept it trucking. also kind of shows in terms of with the production design, how well, how well that worked out with such a short time frame. Because while, on the other hand, a lot of the sets and locations here are in many ways variations on existing locations, but there's the proton packs and the trap and that sort of thing. I had a friend when I was a kid who had the trap and a pro- full proton pack toy. And the while well, these toys and these move from the movies are very heavily modeled on the original props. And there is just all sorts of little fiddly bits and detail on that proton pack and the trap that for something that was probably kit bashed very quickly makes it look really good and, and really sells it as being an unlicensed nuclear accelerator that you can carry around in your back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of attention to detail across the board in this one. Now, they do have a few sets that were constructed. The One of them they actually filmed on the Warner Brothers studio lot. Columbia has its own lot, but Columbia didn't have any lots with the space required for that final set with Gozer. It was just a very large set for the top of 550 Central Park West, 
Incidentally, the top portion of that building is a matte painting superimposed on the real building at 55 Central Park West. Got pictures of that, too. <laughs> to the top of this building, the spire, it wasn't just a matter of space. And it packed the space. They actually had to paint the floors and ceilings to make that night sky appear, that uniform blue color. And that's the reason that they had the clouds forming around the building, was to mask that sky, because the walls were right there. The top of that spire was inches below the roof in the largest enclosed set available in North America. And the power demands for all the lighting and the fog machines were insane. And by insane, I mean they tripped the power and caused blackouts three times while filming. Not just in that studio, but on the entire Warner lot. <laughs> so if you've done the Warner Studio Tour, which I also recommend, very good. It's actually talking about filmmaking now when Universal no longer does. You will see the size of this back lot that they took out. It is a substantial piece of property. So it was a very close call and a lot of things were very tight. They had the prop guys very, very nervous. Because when you're making a movie like this, they like to have redundancy. So if something breaks down, they just pull another one out. For example, in Supernatural, they actually have four cars. So that, you know, that classic car that Dean drives, they've got four of them. So if something happens in yep. one of them, they've got the replacements. They only had one Ecto-1. So in Ghostbusters 2, when they shift to the Ecto-1A partway through filming, that's because the Ecto-1 finally died halfway across the Brooklyn Bridge, and they hmm. had no choice. They were similarly paranoid about Harold Ramis. Because, you know, everyone else gets the costume changes, all that stuff. Egon wears one suit. It looks like he's just got only one type of suit in his closet, and he's regimented and does all this. It wasn't one type of suit. It was one suit. Oh. There was only one that fit him, and they shot the whole film with one prop costume for it. So if anything happened to it, they couldn't match it for the rest of the movie. Boiling Bear's mentioning is, when it comes to combining comedy and horror, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to think, I can't really think of many works before Ghostbusters which combined them so seamlessly. I mean, afterwards, we get things like, we, may, we talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer earlier, where it is, Buffy is, is, is a horror series, but it, but it meshes the horror with humor, particularly dialogue-based humor, with a little bit of slapstick occasionally, very, very well, in a fashion which undermines neither the comedy and makes it feel, cause a sense of wish -la whiplash, or undermines the sense of horror. Prior to Ghostbusters, when I think of com horror comedy, I think more Scooby-Doo, and probably to a certain degree also the filmation Ghostbusters, where it's all about the comedy. There may be a ghost that is involved in this, but it's about it's about the slapstick. I mean, even Abbott and Costello... I admit, I have not seen Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein or Dracula or the Wolfman, but those, I only got the impression, were more about the comedy than any about any extra real sense of giving the horror credibility. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Of those, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein should be on everyone's must-watch list. The rest you can pass on. And Frankenstein has a, a couple of moments that are kind of horror-ish, but it is primarily comedy first, all the way through. As I said, this they have the mix. Like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, when he's tromping through the city, that legitimately scares some people. I know kids in my class who had nightmares because of the librarian. And I know it very well, because some of their mothers were mad at my mother for taking them there on my birthday party, which is why they were so upset. <laughs> but this did it, and it did a lot of it well. We had the miniatures that we talked about with Richard Edlund at the end when the State of Marshmallow Man is marching through the city. We actually have, you notice at the end, everyone's covered in what's supposed to be the melted marshmallow bits, which is actually shaving cream. William Atherton, when he found out that they were going to be dumping all of the shaving cream on him, he asked if it was going to be safe, because he figured that's a lot of shaving cream. It can add up. Is that going to hurt? And the producer said, oh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. We, we tested it. So that's what we're shooting tomorrow. And as soon as he was out of earshot, they ran and got someone to go test it right now, because it hadn't been tested yet. And unfortunately, the, the poor stuntman that they dumped it on, turns out that the shaving cream is light enough that getting hit by that much doesn't hurt. It did turn out that guy had an allergy to the menthol that was in that shaving cream. <laughs> so he got hospitalized anyway and Atherton would have been fine just as he actually was when they did the real stunt 
<laughs> um, Bill, are you allergic to menthol? No. Why? <laughs> well, after that, they spent, because they had so many extras there and they didn't have a chance to run through them all, they just dumped the menthol and spent a lot of money on plain shaving cream. So the movie actually did run slightly over budget. It ended up running, you know, like I said, Ivan Reitman pulled the $30 million number out of the air. It ended up coming in at 33 Well, for an off-the-top-of-the-head estimate, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, looking at a lot of the cost overruns these days, that's cheap. I mean, yeah. Compare that to, say, Waterworld. <laughs> uh, ah, yeah. So they did pull it in, and unfortunately, Box Office Mojo now redirects to the IMDb, and I haven't figured out exactly how to look up the box office results of any particular movie on Box Office Mojo. So we can't do our normal rundown of the week-by-week week in terms of how much how many legs it had. I can tell you that it came out on June 8th, 1984, and by the time I went there for my birthday party in September, it was still going strong. I think I got it. Yeah, it was... It, I can't tell you where it was in the rankings, but like the, it looks at things the gross as when it stopped the theatrical run on October 3rd, 1985, which means it was still in theaters when I was born. Yeah. It means it, it had, was that a 17-month theatrical run? Released yeah, in 84, ran, ran to 85. Yep. And, yeah, it, it, yeah, it ran, though I think some of this is a bit of a, is a relaunch, because uh, we have, through, runs through January 23rd, then it starts back up again in August of 85. Yeah. So there is a gap there. August, well, a one shot in August, and then again in September. But still the point is it was in theaters again when I was born. But by the end of this, it's estimated gross is just from box office two hundred thirty eight million six hundred thirty two thousand one hundred twenty four dollars and probably some change okay so what source did you have for that this is from imdb okay because i'm actually looking at the wikipedia entry right now and that's quoting a box office more like 295 or 295 million so i suspect you're looking at domestic and imdb is listing worldwide no, oh, sorry, is, Wikipedia's is, listing worldwide. Yeah, you, yeah, Wikipedia's listing worldwide. This is just the U.S. gross. So, in any event, when we're looking at that rule of thumb of two to three times the budget in order to be considered profitable, that means as long as it made somewhere between 66 and $99 million, it was probably making money. Going over $230 million, it's a safe bet that this made money. Just a wee bit. Yeah, proportionally speaking, it is one of the most profitable movies that we've ever discussed. I think it's probably second only to the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where that was more like a factor of 10 to 1. It was very profitable. As we said, it was a cultural phenomenon, and it lasted a long time. Now, it did do fairly well in our tournament as well. In the first round, when we were just ranking things straight up, it came in at number 13. So one notch behind Inception, one notch above The Empire Strikes Back. When it came to the actual brackets, starting in round two, it went up against Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, took 60% of the vote. Next round, it went up against The Time Machine from 1960, again, 60% of the vote. Next round, it went up against Watchmen from 2009, 70% of the vote. And it finally fell against 2001 A Space Odyssey with only 30% of the vote. And I'd just like to point out, 2001 A Space Odyssey ended up as one of the last four contenders. That went down to Star Wars. And Star Wars is what ultimately won the tournament. Yeah, that that is a very impressive showing. For God, that went up against a comedy basically in its first round uh, with um, with Star Trek IV. Yeah, and when you look at the following that Star Trek has, and these are comparable genres, it says a lot about the quality of this film. If anything, I, I would agree with most of those. If anything, I would say that in a general film tournament... I would say, yes, 2001 was the only one on the list that should have beat this film. As a science fiction film, it also leans pretty heavily on fantasy. So I would yeah. have understood had it gone down sooner, because some of the others are better science fiction films than this one is. But as a straight-up film, it's very hard to find a movie that ages this well. It is still very funny, still well-acted, still well-written. The only elements on screen that really 
replace it in its era are the computer technology, which it looks archaic now, but it, it puts them at a cutting edge office in 1984. People thought it was a joke and ridiculous when Harold Ramis says print is dead in 1984. Look at the world today. Print is barely hanging on when it comes to things like newspapers. Right? Online is killing that, at least that portion of print. Ebooks have finally stabilized with a significant portion as now being digital. The other element that really dates it is the amount of times that the heroes smoke. So not Egon, but Venkman Stance and Zedmore all smoke, which puts this as pre-1985, because that's the point where the film industry as a whole decided we're going to stop modeling this behavior with the heroes. Yeah, that is like the only, as far as the things which date it, that the, that the crew had any, that the film crew has any production, had any control over, rather. The other fact thing that kind of dates it, and this is something that the at least the crew has no control has no control over, is the New York City skyline. Yeah, you've got the New York City skyline. You've got your Larry Kings and Casey Kasem's and others who are nineteen eighties. Oh, thing I'm thinking here is the elephant in the room. Whenever you're watching any older movie shot in New York, you is, is you have the driving along the Brooklyn Bridge, the big shot of the New York skyline. Oh, oh right, right. World Trade Center. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not quite as prominent as, say, the 1978 King Kong, but it's there. Yeah. 1978 King Kong, or another movie we'll be talking about later, Escape from New York. But yeah. Yeah. So it is there. And it is, in terms of the filmmaking itself, that and some of the compositing when you've got the terror dogs, especially when it's chasing Rick Moranis across the street, some of that stands out as, as you know, special effects that have been dated. But if you were to sit down today and make a movie set in 1984, it would be you'd be hard pressed to tell, you know, which is a very authentic modern film set in 1984 and which was this. I would say it's the smoking that really makes it stand out. You can tell it's 1984 not just because of the smoking, if you don't know about the production rules, but as you said, by the skyline, by Sigourney Weaver's hair that is very much a 1980s style. Mm-hmm. There are some things that mark it of the era. But it ages very well in terms of entertaining people to this day. Absolutely. I mean, my five-year-old niece will watch and love this movie. My nine-year-old niece will watch and love this movie. It is a very well-made film. Completely agreed. It It's definitely one of my favorite comedies of all time. It's not my absolute favorite comedy of all time. As you said, it is highly quotable. And that's a big part of it. We've got, where do these stairs go? They go up. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of the lines that my sister and I quoted a lot as children. I'm even quoting the commentary often where, you know, the Columbia lady shows up and I go, oh, new Columbia lady. Because that's one of the lines they had. And it's actually in this commentary where I learned that the actress who modeled for that Columbia logo got paid a grand total of less than $100 and has appeared in more movies than anyone else in history. I'm, uh, you know, quotable. The, I imagine with the role-playing game uh, group's rules. I've been more than a few groups which have been happily quoted the, oh, frequently quoted the, get em, that's your plan. <laughs> like, that's your plan. And from the end, this, this is a great plan. I'm proud to be a part of it. Yeah. Usually before getting involved in the plan, yeah, which is. I love this plan. I love this plan. Proud to be, proud yeah. to be a part of it. Particularly when you're getting involved in plans which are, in fact, actually terrible. <laughs> yeah. We had, um, there was a game, I believe it was X-Boing for Linux, the X-Windows system that would, prompt you for words of wisdom if you got a high score. And my words of wisdom were always yes. And I couldn't resist it. Because when you got the high score, it came in with a sound clip of Are you a god? <laughs> and when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I have a very good friend of mine we actually met when we were both doing our masters in particle physics who went into particle physics because early in the movie, someone comes up and asks Peter Venkman, what does that have to do with it? And he says, back off, man. I'm a scientist. <laughs> and as a child, he thought, scientists can do that? That is awesome. And the entire time he was working on his master's, that was his email signature. It was, back off, man. I'm a scientist. Quote of Dr. Peter Venkman. <laughs> it's just, it is loaded with quotes. Even when I was working at a theater, our couple of the co-workers and I, our cue to say I can smell popcorn bur burning was, listen, do you smell something? 
<laughs> From earlier in the film. Alright. Uh, I, well, I think that covers pretty much everything. It doesn't cover everything, but it, if we try to cover everything, we'll be here all week. This will, this will be the... Yeah. Um, fifty. This will be the fifty-two hour long podcast. It will be. This will be. It, it would be as you know the original Star Trek podcast that Brian and I did, where the podcast was longer than the source material. This could easily become that. I could just sit here and quote that fantastic commentary. Instead, I'm going to tell you, find it, listen to it. I listen to a lot of the commentaries on the DVDs I have, and as I said, that is the single most entertaining. Followed closely by the uh, Richard Jonner uh, commentary on the, the feature-length Superman the Motion Picture. But it is excellent. You will find out about the actual science experiments that inspired the jokes about the time Egon was going to drill a hole through his head, or the ESP experiment where they're getting electrocuted. Those were based on real experiments, and they will talk about those in the commentary. We will talk about where the Tunguska Blast was quoted. They will talk about how they managed to come up with the visual effects that they had on Dana and later Rick Moranis, where they had them hooked up to this machine, and there was that purple, blue, and green image of them, of their heads on the screen behind them that matches their motions. And it turns out they did that in a much more simple way than I would have expected. It's a very rich and entertaining commentary. Definitely give it a shot. Yep. I can't speak for um, the other thing that's come out of Dan Aykroyd's interest in the supernatural, which is his Crystal Skull Vodka, but it, 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 but still, Ghostbusters also came out of of Ackroyd's fascination with the supernatural, so hey. Yeah, and Sci-Factor, his little short-run Canadian show. Gotta say, this is, as far as our Halloween horror podcasts go, this has been a year for quotable, this is for quotable movies. Ghostbusters, Predator, and The Terminator, so. Yeah, and there's uh, another quote Coming up in the final podcast, which you'll be hearing next week, that you don't hear a lot of it, but it does show up in the opening credits for a TV series that we'll also be discussing in the X-Files Retrospective podcast late next summer. So you can listen for that one. So in the meantime, you can join us next week when we sit down to discuss a rather historic film, Bride of Frankenstein from the 1930s. So again, if you enjoy what you've heard, you can review us on Stitcher or on iTunes, wherever your source for the feed was. I'm one of your hosts, Blaine Dowler. I'm your other host, Alex Case. And thank you for listening.